Welcome to the MDS podcast, the official podcast channel of the International Parkinson's and Movement Disorder Society. I'm Dr. Shweta Prasad from the National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences, Bangalore, India. And I, along with my colleagues, Dr. DeLuca and Dr. Kirby, I'm the co-chair of the MDS Peer Review, Education and Mentoring Program. Today, in continuation of our special series on the peer reviewing process, I'm honored to be joined by Professor Jose Obeso. Professor Obeso is currently the director of the Neurosciences Center at Madrid and was a past editor of the Movement Disorders Journal. Hello, Professor Obeso, and welcome to the MDS podcast. Hello. Thank you. My pleasure. So today we'll be talking about how not to conduct a peer review, fatal avoidable errors. So Professor Obeso, what are your opinion or your comments on accepting an article without any experience in the field? Yes, yes, this is certainly one of the difficulties, perhaps not the worst, but certainly a major difficulty. I should say, first of all, that highly successful journals like our society journal, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice, are almost always running short of reviewers. So the input to get reviewers from people in the community is high and therefore it is possible that uh, the editor, associate editor, get a wrong reviewer invitation. And that's possible because the demand is so high. So the fact that one gets a review request doesn't mean that uh, it is guaranteed that the person trusts that you know about that. There may be a mismatch. And then if one doesn't know enough, one cannot give proper evaluation of any study because most movement disorder neurologists probably believe they can judge a case report about something or an imaging of a case, this kind of vignette, things like that. And probably this is fair because the fact is that if you know enough, because I have seen thousands of patients who began with dystonia in the neck, then had a, a mutation and, and I come across a case report without dystonia in the neck, I'm inventing this, of course. Well, that's fair enough. But generally for proper research articles, one should have work and should not trust just in reading because reading is not good enough for a good review. I, I think it's much better to say that uh, I decline because I, I'm not expert enough. And the other collateral of this is to accept and then ask somebody to help you. For instance, if I know about Tremo, but I don't know much about TMS, I can ask a colleague to help me with the methodology of the TMS paper applied to Tremo. And then I recognize that in the review report. I mentioned that I asked the collaboration of Weber for the TMS part. This is fine. So one can accept a part or just tell the editor, I'm commenting on the Tremo segment of the paper and I'm not say, making any comments on TMS because I, I don't know enough. That's not fair. To give an opinion about something one cannot judge more than normal, because we all can judge. Of course, that's what we all do all the time. We judge if the football team is playing well or if the politician is bad, etc. That's we're very judgmental. But to judge on a paper, on a colleague, either very positive or very negative, the two are 
are not good for science, not good for academics, not good for us. So what do you think about personal bias in comments? How problematic does it make things for the editors? This is terrible. This is certainly, other than faking and making wrong statements, this is terrible because first it, it biases the process. It's bad for the person who does that because then the editors will think badly about the person. And I have, I've been in that position several times. You have one review, which is very negative and one review, which is normal positive, let's say. And then you find out that the person is actually has some personal interest in this. Then you ask a third review and the third reviewer say, no, this is fine. Then when one goes back, cautiously realizes there is a hidden intention in the review process, which could have killed the paper. There are people who do more subtle things and it's just to put a lot of limitations and ask for several new uh, questions and pose new challenges to the paper, which delay the article. And in the meantime, authors get their paper out. And that to me is, is the worst of all, because that's really, that's cheating, that's faking, that's making, you know, all interest of information. It's different, very different. If I'm working in a field and I get to review a paper on the same area, which is likely, then I, oh, these people are doing this and we are doing something similar. Well, either we need to speed up guys because somebody else is going to publish something. Uh, we can improve this or we can add something to what is happening because after all, this is the normal way science and research go, but to deliberately be negative or just delay the paper to gain time to, you know, on, on benefit, that's really bad. It to speak very badly about the reviewer and sooner or later reviewers will realize that that is the case when that bad, I have come across in my 10 years as editors only a couple of times, but of course we block, you know, we red cross those persons uh, as reviewers. So in a situation when the editor has realized that there's something really fishy about the comments provided by a reviewer, they've realized that there's something odd about them. Do you have situations when you actually refrain from sending those comments out to the submitting authors? Does that happen? Is that possible? Oh, yes, yes. Yes. I mean, that's the prerogative of the editor. If I think the reviewer was very biased and was making personal comments deliberately, either to be very negative or even to attack. We are not free of people who are, <laughs> who are stream. We cut off or just don't send at all that review, uh, that, that can be over overtaken. Sometimes that had to be done because the author should not be exposed to personal offensive wording which has no value because even a not good paper for a, a given journal uh, will benefit from a good review. So either you don't do it, say, no, I don't want to do this paper because it's so terrible, I cannot read it. And you tell the editor, that's it. Which happens, that happens, that's it. Or if you do it to help the authors to make it better for another time or another journal or whatever, but just to be offensive as an author. In my younger years, I had a colleague who not only was very negative, but wrote in a almost offensive way. 
And so I eventually mentioned that to editors and, and one editor told me once, well, this is, is the problem that person has. He, she does it to everybody. It's not with you. But, but then everybody recognized that person becomes aggressive because somebody else is doing what he or she wanted to do. Yeah. Is it okay if you accept an uh, invitation to review, but then you realize as you look at the entire article, because very often when we look at abstracts, we can't really gauge as much as we need, especially in context of case reports or clinical vignettes where you don't have abstracts sometimes, or even bigger articles. Is it all right if you accept the review? A look at the article, maybe pay closer attention to the center that it's come from, or you realize after accepting that you probably have personal bias. Is it okay for them to contact the editor and say that I need to withdraw because this is a problem for me? Well, what I recommend to do is to write to the editor and say, I realize now this, I'm still willing to do the review, but you need to understand that uh, I may be biased and that's fine. That's fine because the editor now can judge. So it's not a problem once it's known. The problem is when nobody knows. Right. That's the real problem. So with that, I think we end this episode of our special series on the peer review process. Thank you very much, Professor Obeso, for so many of those personal insights, which I think would be very interesting for some of our young reviewers. In the next episode, we'll be discussing the approach to writing an effective peer review as a non-English speaker. Thank you so much for listening. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website.